Well, if you're like me tonight, uh, tonight is bittersweet for you. I've really enjoyed um, our studies from Romans. Um, I guess it's only sweet for me because I'm excited to share the things that I've got to study. But uh, tonight's really uh, a bittersweet night for me. I've really enjoyed the studies. I appreciate the efforts that have been put in by everyone who's led these studies so far. Tonight we're going to be covering Romans chapter 16, as has been stated. This is the last chapter of Romans. And to give a short review of what we've covered most recently, Paul has finished his main discourse on the gospel. He's gone through a lot of his theology and application and what the Christian life should look like. He's also shared his bigger goal of traveling to Spain. And he had, up until this point, kind of headquartered his missionary journeys out of the city and the church of Antioch. And so he wants to headquarter out of Rome. And that's one of his main goals for writing this letter. Brian talked about that uh, last week. So what we're going to cover tonight, now Paul is going to give his final greetings and he's going to wrap up this letter. So there are five basic sections that I've um, cut this chapter into. Number one, he gives commendation to a lady named Phoebe who was traveling to Rome. Number two, uh, verses 3 through 16, he gives greetings to specific Romans that he had interacted with in the past. He had never traveled to Rome, but a lot of these people that he had interacted with were, were living in Rome now, and so he's going to give these greetings to them. In verses 17 through 20, he gives some final warnings about false teachings. Verses 21 through 24, he gives some salutations from some of the people that were there at Corinth with him when he was writing this. And then finally, the closing doxology, or a final message of praise to God. So let's begin by looking in verses 1 and 2. Paul, at the beginning of Romans 16, he says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also." So at the beginning of this chapter, he mentions this lady named Phoebe, and he talks about how she is of the church in Centria. So where is that church? Where is that city? Here's a map of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, the Roman Empire. And there in the center, that's circled in red, is the city of Corinth. And just to the southeast of it is the port city of Centria. And so when Paul took the gospel to, to Corinth, uh, no doubt that that gospel was taken, and there was now a church in Centria. <clears throat> and what Paul does at the beginning of this letter, he mentions her, but he gives her a commendation. So if I was to travel someplace today, if people wanted to learn about Titus Miller, what could they do? They could get on the internet, they could Google my name, they could get on Facebook, they could listen to the podcast, and they could learn a little about, about me. They could call someone that they knew that lived here in Plainview, and they could talk to them and say, tell me about this guy, tell me what he's about. Um, they didn't have that option back in that day. And so when a person would be traveling for business or for po political reasons or even for spiritual reasons, when a person would be traveling to a place that they had never been before, they would often take a letter of commendation 
from someone that the people there would know. Paul was that person. And so as Phoebe is traveling to the city of Rome, Paul gives her a letter of commendation. And it just happens to be in the scriptures, in this letter to to Rome. And he gives her a commendation. Now, notice the things that he uses to describe her. She is our sister. She is a servant of the church. And she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So we don't know exactly why she was traveling to Rome. There's a lot of ideas out there. She may have been the one that Paul entrusted to take the letter of Romans. And so she was carrying the letter of Romans to the church at Rome. And maybe as a part of that letter to the Romans, he also had that recommendation or that commendation for Phoebe. But we don't know that for sure. But what we do know is that this was a woman of character. Paul knew who, who she was, what she was about. He knew her character. She knew that she was a giver. He knew that she was a a person who had helped many, many people. And that got me to thinking about Paul. And if he was to write a letter of commendation, or if he had the option of writing a letter of commendation for me, what kind of things would Paul say about me? Would he have a lot of good things to say, or would he be on the fence? You know, there's been times Titus has done some good stuff, but there's also been some times he's disappointed me. He was willing to go out and take a risk for this woman because of her character and the things that she had done. This is a great and resounding endorsement of her character. So Paul gives his commendation. So whenever Phoebe was to come, they were to receive her in the Lord, they were to be hospitable, and they were to help her in the things that she had need of doing. Next in verses 3 through 16, we have Paul greeting a lot of specific individuals. Now that's the list right there. You know, uh, when I first thought about this, I thought, man, this is, uh, there's a lot of just names, right? It's just names, and we're reading through it, and the temptation could be, okay, you know, there's a lot of people, greet so-and-so, greet these people, I don't know how to say their names, and let's just get on to the good stuff, and we'll finish Romans and then go into 1 Corinthians. That is not the attitude that we need to have about this section. Paul cared about these people. And we see, as we study this and we look at these, every person had something that Paul had to say about them. You know, if Paul didn't really care about them, he could have just said, greet these people. And he could have just listed them off like things that we would list off in the grocery store. I've got to get this, got to get this, got to get this. That's not the way Paul viewed these people. These were real people that he cared about. And so let's turn over to... Chapter 16, and read verses 3 through 15. Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. All, excuse me, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. 
Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Insyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. And greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. So as we come across that, why is that in there? Why is that in the scriptures? What does that have to do with me? As we think about what the Bible is, the Bible is God revealed in written form. We have the mind of God written in words. The same God who created the heavens and the universe has revealed himself in the scriptures. And he thought it was important to put these names and these things in his scripture. You see, God is concerned about individuals. God is concerned about people. And so is Paul. And as we see this scripture and we see this group of people, we see a snapshot of what the church looked like back in the first century. But not only that, we see Paul's love and his affection for the church. So this wasn't just a generic grocery list, but Paul put a lot of effort and thought into the way that he described these people. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, in another letter to the church at Galatia, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. As I was thinking about this passage of Scripture, this verse came across my mind. Because what Paul does here is he values people from all sorts of backgrounds. He values people of Jews and Greeks. He remembers them. He values those who were slaves and those who were free. And he says, there's neither Jew nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And as we look at the list that Paul, uh, Paul lists here, we see that in the way that he remembers these people. Notice all the men. There were 17 men, and they're scattered about. But in amongst all of them, there are names of ladies or women that he remembered. Now I want to take a moment, and I want to think about something our society says about Christianity. Our society pushes this idea that Christianity is a patriarchal, misogynistic religion that's based on ancient ideas and ancient views of women. Is that the truth? Do we believe that? I know a lot of Christians have embraced that idea somewhat. And people say Paul was a woman hater, and he didn't care for women, and he was a single man, and he didn't like women. And so they say, well, I know Paul said this, but those are just his opinions. And they dismiss specific parts of the Scripture because of this idea that Christianity is misogynistic. But Paul here lists women along with men. One professor I read said, Ancient Rome was a macho society, often misogynistic, where women did not enjoy equal citizens and rights. This, this applied legal, legally, this applied in family, um, politics, and all sorts of areas. And from what I've studied, Jewish society wasn't much better. Women held very little value in those cultures. So as we think about that and we step outside of what our culture says about women's rights, and feminism, and we step back into the Roman uh, Empire in the first century, and what we see here is that Christianity was not misogynistic. It was not oppressive to women. In fact, it put women and men on the same scale. 
And those people who say that, yeah, Paul was a woman hater, they're just flat out wrong. And we can see it in his scriptures. He loved these women. He cared about these people. He experienced difficulties and he worked and labored with these men and these women. So don't believe the lies that this world says about Christianity and about the Bible and about Apostle Paul. He loved women and he loved men. Or he loved these women and men. The second thing I was thinking about is, were there Jews and Gentiles in this church? Most of the names that we read in this list are uh, Gentile names. But we do know some of these people were Jews. Priscilla and Aquila were part of the Jews who were exiled from Rome under the rule of, of the Caesar Claudius. Andronicus and Junia, Paul refers to them as his countrymen. Paul was a Jew, so these people were his countrymen. And Herodian was also his countrymen. So we see a church that wasn't divided based on uh, backgrounds of Jews and Gentiles. But we see that they were there together. Also, Galatians chapter 3 talks about slave and free. Now this is conjecture here, and so I'm just going to put this out there. But scholars say that there were a lot of names that were generally used for slaves. And I've got some of those highlighted here. Names like Amplius and Urbanus were very common slave names. Persis, Rufus, Philologus, Julia, Olympus, and Nereus were very common slave names. Based on what we know about the ratio of free men to slaves in the Roman Empire, and what we read about in the New Testament, there was a good chance that a lot of these people were slaves or free men. But what we have here is they're mixed in with the free. These weren't two separate societies in the church. They were all coming together, sitting on the same pews, working and laboring together on the Lord. Paul also mentions those who are of the household of Aristobulus and those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. When we think about a household, what do we think about? We think about a father and a mother and children, right? Well, in those days, a household also included slaves or servants or guards. If you want to talk about someone's household, they were often, um, these people were often included. So maybe these were the children of these um, people, these famous people, Aristobulus or Narcissus, but more than likely these were slaves who served under these prominent figures in the Roman society but here's the reality of it i color-coded and i highlighted jews and didn't highlight gentiles this is what paul saw in the church random people coming together but all unified under the name of christ just like galatians chapter 3 talks about there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you're all one in christ jesus this is the way he viewed the church of Rome. All people brought to the same level under the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, the other thing I notice is the way that Paul expressed his affection for different people. Notice how many times he calls somebody his beloved. He says, my beloved Epinatus, Amplius, my beloved in the Lord, Stachys, my beloved, and the beloved per Persis. Now, that's a pretty um, affectionate term to call someone my beloved Paul wasn't afraid to show his love and we see that he chose this word because he really and deeply cared for these people 
Paul doesn't just talk about people and his affection for them, but he also talks about working with them. This was a valuable thing. Priscilla and Aquila were my fellow workers. Mary, who labored much for us. Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labored in the Lord. And the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. He recognized people for the work that they had done. This guy is a worker. That woman, she is a worker. As Paul reflected on these people, he also remembered uh, experiences, life experiences that he had with these people. He remembered how Priscilla and Aquila had risked their own necks for his life. We don't know exactly what that is, but this made a difference to Paul. And he remembered, these people took a risk on me. He remembers Epinatus when he came to Achaia and how he began to preach the gospel. And he remembered, this was the first guy that I got to convert. He remembered being in prison, and there with him were Andronicus and Junia. So he remembers life experiences. And last of all, I want to notice the familial relational terms that Paul uses. We remember how he called Phoebe our sister, and he refers to people as his fellow workers, his countrymen, his brethren. And most of all, this is probably my favorite part of this chapter, he remembers a lady that we don't know her name, but he says, I remember Rufus and his mother and mine. Now, as Paul thought about Rufus's mom, what did he think about? She wasn't just Rufus's mom. She was a motherly figure for Paul. When I think about Paul, I think about him being a no-nonsense, low-maintenance guy who endured a lot. He knew how to deal with very little. He was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was robbed. He went through a lot for the kingdom of Christ. But Paul didn't do these things on his own. There were people who supported him. And there was this woman who was old enough to be Paul's mother who saw a man and said, he needs the love of a mother. And so she took him aside. Maybe she made him, baked him some chocolate chip cookies. Maybe she ironed his tunic for him. Maybe she gave him a bed to sleep in. Whatever it was that she did, Paul didn't remember her by her name. That's my mom. And that's what she did for him. And I think about the, the body of, of Christ, and I think about how God has placed every member, and God has given us all different and unique abilities. Paul had his role to play. He was on the front lines, and he was preaching, and he was teaching. But he wasn't alone. There was those who were there behind him supporting him. And this woman, maybe her talent and her gift wasn't to go out and preach the gospel and to teach people. But you know what she could do? She could make a guy feel loved. And even a man like Paul needed that. And I think about our church today. And I think about some of you. And I think about some of your gifts. I've experienced that motherly influence. And this warms my heart. Because I know that God sees, just like Paul sees that, God sees that. He saw that then and he sees it today. <clears throat> so what we see in this church is we see a church that Paul cared for, Paul loved. These people were very important to him. So let's think about some thoughts from this section. I know Trevor did some studies on Christian evidences uh, a couple weeks ago during our meeting. And I think this is one of those sections of Scripture that's valuable in that. This was not just 
a series of writings, uh, stories, fables, whatever. But Paul lists real people, real names, and real places. And someone who wanted to know about Christianity, they could go to Rome, and they could meet these people, and they could really examine these. So I think this is a good, um, a good passage of study for Christian evidences. Number two, Christianity did not oppress women. It did not oppress slaves. It did not oppress minorities. Rather, it brought everybody to the same level. In Roman society, in all other societies, women were treated lower. Slaves were treated lower. But when it came to Christ and it came to the family of Christ, everyone was brought to the same level. Number three, we recognize that Paul didn't categorize people into groups. He didn't list all the Jews first and then all the Gentiles or all the rich and then all the poor. Everyone was there on the same level. Number four, the first century church was full of workers, not just Paul. We see a team of people who supported Paul, who worked with Paul, who helped Paul, who was in prison with Paul. He never, well, he, most of the time he did not have to do it on his own. There were, might, might have been times, but he always had people who were willing and working with him. Paul preached, but not alone. He was persecuted, but not alone. And he labored, but it was not alone. And number five, Paul had so much love and affection for the church. As I read this section of Scripture, he could, like I said, he could have just done a grocery list of people, but he wanted to express his love and his affection for the church. He cared about these people. He remembered the things that they had done for him. He remembered what the things that they had done for Christ. He loved these people. And I got to thinking about us today. Do we love the brethren? Do we love the church like Paul did? This is not something we're meant to do alone. And this is not something that we're supposed to just come here on Sundays and endure for an hour and a half, listen to the preacher, and then go about our lives. We're supposed to be a family. And we see that love and affection grow as these people work together and endure together and help the body to grow. Do we have the same kind of love and affection for the church that Paul did? Romans 16, verse 16. He says, Greet one another with the holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. This um, action of greeting people with a kiss was common in that culture. It's referenced in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. We remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas approached Jesus, what did he do? He gave him a kiss. It was an insincere kiss. This was very common in that culture, and this was a way that they could show affection. And I think if Paul was to write a letter to the church at Plainview, he would probably say, give a good handshake or a bro hug or something like that. That, that would be common to our culture. So Paul says, embrace Phoebe and say hi to all these people. But Paul's not just going to act like it's all rainbows and butterflies. He's going to give warnings about false teachings. As we move into verse 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. 
For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So he says hi to all these people, and he says, Well, wait, I have something I urge you. I have an urgent, urgent thing for you to think about. <clears throat> As I was reading about this, I think about uh, something my mom used to tell me growing up. Anytime I was traveling somewhere, or anytime I was going to go do something that was potentially dangerous, she would tell me, I love you, be careful. And that's exactly what Paul does with them. He's expressed his love and affection, but be careful. And be careful specifically about false teachers. He says, I want you to note those who cause divisions and offenses. And it was all defense, or divisions and offenses based on what? Teachings that were contrary to the doctrine which they had learned. These people had been taught by the apostles. They had the truth. And Paul says, you be aware of people who come in and they're dividing because they're teaching something that is different. He talks about how they uh, lead people astray by smooth words and flattering speech. They use those to deceive the hearts of the simple. It's all about positive. It's all about things that make you feel good. Flattering speech. Blessings on this and blessings on that. and Make you feel good. And it's all about deceiving the simple. And he says... Those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own belly. He says, if you come across a person who is teaching false things, they're deceiving people, he says, they're not servants of Christ. They are servants of their own selves. So, what do we do with these kind of people? He says, to note them and avoid them. So my first question is, is this a license for us to just burn bridges with people who have different views of Scripture than us? Is this a license for us to just dismiss people and never interact with them and never even give them a chance? And what I want to do is I want to look at an example where a couple of Christians interacted with a man who was teaching falsely, and we see how they handled the situation where he was teaching false things. This is the story of Aquila and Priscilla interacting with Apollos in Acts chapter 18. So, in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, it says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, he came to Ephesus. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here we have Aquila and Priscilla. They're, they're in the synagogue, and this man comes, and he's teaching. And he taught accurately the things of the Lord. There was a lot of truth involved, but the thing that he was teaching was the baptism of John. Now, they didn't have the ability to read Apollos' heart right then, did they? They didn't know what his intentions were. They, they had never met him. But they know that he was teaching something that was a lot right and a little bit wrong. Now, when people teach false things, do they just come out and say, yeah, I'm going to teach you lies and false things 
No, that's not the way Satan worked in the garden. He told Eve a lot of truth, and then he slipped a lie in, and then told her some other truth, right? And that's the way false teachers are. And maybe that was the way Apollos was working. He taught accurately most things, but he had one thing wrong. And I could see Aquila and Priscilla, maybe they're sitting there and they're, they're whispering to each other, you know, that was pretty good, but there was a glaring problem in teaching the baptism of John. So what was their response? Did they just say he's a false teacher and just dismiss him and never say anything to him again? No, that's not what they did. Did they just let the false teaching slide? That is not what they did either. But we do see that he, um, he met the check mark. He, he checked the box for false teaching. We also see that Apollos happened to be an eloquent man. The Bible says he was an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures. And so Paul gave a warning in, in Romans 16 about smooth talking. Aquila and Priscilla witnessed two aspects of Paul's warning in Romans 16. But did this give them a license to dismiss him? And the answer is no. They didn't know what his intentions were. And so what did they need to do? They needed to give him an opportunity to learn the truth. Not just dismiss him without ever giving him a chance. And so it comes down to verse 26. The Bible says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And what did they do? When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately so how was he to respond to that they didn't know how he was going to respond but they wanted to give him a chance they didn't dismiss him and say he's a heretic and that he needs to be avoided and we see what happens after they do this in verse 27 when he desired to cross to Achaia the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him so now Apollos was wanting to travel to Achaia and what happened they gave him a letter of commendation, just like Paul gave to Phoebe in this chapter, or in Romans chapter 16. Apollos got a letter of commendation. So what can we infer from that? He humbly received the scriptures, and he, underst- he received the teaching and the rebuke that Aquila and Priscilla gave him. The Bible says, The brethren wrote, exhorting the, b- the disciples to receive him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So, he had two two of the boxes checked. uh, Two of the boxes checked. But the last one, no, he didn't. They gave him a chance, and he was able to get on the right path. So, the lesson is, is we don't need to automatically dismiss someone who has a different view of Scripture than we do. We don't need to assume people's attentions based on what we think or what we, uh, what we assume. But we need to give people a chance to understand the, the truth. The next thing I want us to think about is to be humble when we have these kind of situations. All three of these people expressed or were humble. All three, Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos were all humble in the way they handled themselves. Aquila and Priscilla could have said, you're wrong you're just completely wrong, and you're dumb, you don't need to teach. They could have done lots of things like that. But they said, hey, we want to teach you the way of the Lord more accurately. Well, Apollos could have said, well, I'm an eloquent man, and I, I went to Alexandria, and I know all these things. He was humble too. 
And I think we need to be humble because we don't, never know which side we're on. I've been on the side of Aquila and Priscilla before, but I've also been on the Apollo side, and I didn't know it at first. And it took someone humbly coming to me and t- taking the courage to show me that I was wrong and to get me on the right direction. So Paul, in Romans, going back to Romans chapter 16, he says, we need to note those kind of people, and we need to avoid them. If, if Apollos would have rejected the truth, and he would refuse to meet with Aquila, then they would have had every right to dismiss him. Avoid Apollos, don't interact with him. But because they gave him a chance, they were able to help him to get on the right track. So we need to be aware of the ever-present danger of the false doctrine, according to Romans 16, like Aquila and Priscilla. But we also need to have the proper biblical knowledge so that when we are... uh, When someone preaches false things, that we can embrace them and we can interact with them and, and help them to see the truth. But we also need to have courage. Be willing to take that chance with people and to do it with love. All right, verse 19. Paul says, For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. So the Romans had a reputation of being willing to receive and ready to obey. So this made them prime for false teachers. He said, Be aware, be cautious. And then he says, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. So, to be wise in what is good, to, to look at what is genuine, what is true, what is right. He says, be wise or, or have a great understanding and great focus on that. And when it comes to the evil things, be simple. You don't have to spend all your time focused on the, on the wrong and on the lies and on those false things. If you spend all your time focused on what is good and what is true, when you are faced with the counterfeit, you'll know instantly. And I know, I thought of an example of this today. Um, This has been months ago. Bethany and I were having a conversation that was based around the Dodds decision, the Supreme Court. And something that we had overheard, or I'd heard of a woman saying, a woman basically said that God was okay with killing B-A-B-I-S. And the reason I spelled that out is because I said that in front of my daughter. And she was over there playing. And, and I was quoting somebody. And as soon as she said that, her head jerked and she said, what? You see, every day we talk to our daughter about how good God is, how loving, how kind, how he loves her and he cares for her and he loves babies. And then she heard that, the alarms went off. She had never had that idea come across her mind because we want her to be simple concerning evil. And that's what the idea that Paul wanted the Christians to have. Don't spend all your time dwelling on the negative, all the false, and all the evil things. Focus on what is good and put all your effort there. And when you see something that's counterfeit, you'll be able to recognize this is not the real deal. So when it comes to our teaching or to, or to our focus and our study. We need to be wise concerning what is good and simple concerning what is evil.
Now, in verse 20, there's an ironic statement here that I love. He says, if you do these things, God promises that, or the God of peace promises that he will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So we have the God of peace, but he's crushing the head of Satan. God is a God of peace, but there is that war going on between him and Satan. And no doubt, this is a reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God told Satan that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Christ overcame Satan, and every day, through God's power, through, his, uh, through Christ, we are able to conquer Satan and to conquer those lies. But this is only if we embrace the things that God has said, only if we're watchful for false teachers, only if we mark those and we avoid those who teach false doctrines, only if we embrace the things that Christ has said. So thoughts from this section. We need to be ever aware of the dangers of false teachers. They were a problem back then, and they're a problem today. Secondly, we don't need to be quick to assume others' intentions. We need to provide people an opportunity to learn and to grow. We're to test the spirits, not to dismiss the spirits, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. We need to ultimately judge the conduct of others by the standard of truth. Not what we think, not what we like, not what our opinion is. But Paul said, mark those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which you learn from us. It all comes back to the standard of the Bible. And we need to remember that God is the one who gives victory, not us. God empowers us. It's not something that we do on our own. In verses 21 through 24, after Paul gives this dire warning, he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. And I, Tertius, who wrote the epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So something I want to draw out from this passage is, Paul held a great love and affection for the brethren in Rome, but he was not the only one. This was not just unique to Paul. Timothy and Lucius and all these other men, they cared about these people in Rome. They cared about the church in Rome. These men believed that they were all a part of that kingdom and a part of that family, and that they, these were brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ in Rome, and they cared about them. We should have that same kind of love, not just for this congregation, but throughout the congregations of the world. Now, in verse 22, some of you might be confused. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. I thought you'd been saying that Paul wrote this letter, right? Paul dictated the letter, but Tertius was the scribe or the guy who was in charge of putting it on to paper. And Paul allowed him the opportunity to say, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. After this final salutation, Paul gives a concluding um, doxology to a profound book. Now, for such a profound book like Romans with deep, deep, deep and profound thoughts, wouldn't you expect for Paul to have a profound conclusion? The answer is yes. And that's exactly what he did. In verses 25 through 27, that's one long sentence. And what Paul does is he draws in these ideas and these, these principles that he's talked about beginning in Romans chapter 1. 
And he brings them all down together in this one long sentence. And he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone be wise, or to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So as we think about this conclusion and we think about the ideas that Paul brings in, what is the book of Romans about? We can get a snapshot of the book of Romans from this. Number one, the book of Romans is about God. Now to Him. He's speaking about God. Ultimately, this is a letter centered on God. He is the main character. And this is a letter that discusses God's wrath, God's righteous judgment, God's holiness, God's uh, faithfulness to His promises that He has made to mankind. This is a letter about God's love. And ultimately, this is a letter about God's redeeming plan of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus. This is a letter that Paul wrote based or uh, focused on God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God, the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. This was the good news of Christ and the salvation that he offers. And Paul was commissioned by Christ as an apostle, as a messenger, to take that good news into the world. He is able to establish you, to set you firm according to the gospel and preaching of Christ. This letter is not just something God sprung on to mankind. This is not just some idea or some plan, but this is something that God had been talking about through His prophets for many, many years. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known. Paul didn't just bring this idea, this gospel upon him. But beginning in Genesis and working its way through the Old Testament prophets, God slowly unveils what that gospel plan of salvation is. And he says it has been kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. We can look back and we can see all those things that those prophets were talking about. And that's exactly what Paul does. He constantly brings back passages of Scripture from those ancient texts that, describe, that help us to understand and describe that gospel. Now, God did this through Israel and through, uh, through the Jewish people. But we see that this was not just for the Jews. He says it was made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God. Although God's plan was revealed through the people of Israel and through the Messiah of Israel, God's love for all of mankind is shown. Each and every person can take upon that gospel, can believe it and receive it, and receive that power of salvation, whether we're Jews or whether we're Greeks. And when we begin to understand that beautiful message, that New Testament, God-saving plan of salvation, when we understand that grand picture that Paul painted in the book of Romans, all the things that God has done, when we view the wisdom of God, the love of God, the grace of God, God's faithfulness, what does it lead us to do? Now to Him who is able to establish you for obedience to the faith. As we think about everything that God has done for us, 
Is it something that we could say, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'll be a Christian. I'll believe that and just go about our lives. When we truly understand it, it should lead us to love God and to serve God and to be faithful to God just as He has been faithful to us. It should lead us to be a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. This letter is all about explaining how you and I shouldn't just mentally believe in God, but we should be faithful and we should have the obedience that He expects. So now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Last but not least, Paul says, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. It's all about God. It's all about glorifying Him. He has come up with this wonderful plan of salvation and to Him alone be the glory. I hope that our study tonight and our study of Romans beginning weeks and weeks ago, that we appreciate that plan of salvation, that we appreciate God's love for mankind. We appreciate all the things that He has done so that you and I can be a part of His family, so that you and I can be a part of His kingdom, so that we can be free from our sins. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. I appreciate your attention this, mo- this evening. I hope the lesson's been good for you. We're going to offer an invitation at this time. If you want to know more about that gospel plan of salvation, maybe you've studied a little bit, maybe you know a little bit, but you want to know more, find someone who can help you know. There will be lots and lots of people who would be willing to study with you tonight. Maybe you've already studied, and you have a little bit of faith, and you have a little bit of understanding, but you're ready to have that obedient faith. A faith that not only just believes mentally, but I'm ready to put my trust in Him. I'm ready to give Him my life. I'm ready to be a living sacrifice for Him. If you're ready to do that, we're ready to help you. If you want to obey the gospel, if you need the prayers of the church, come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.